Hello and welcome. I am Dante Freeman, the Communications Manager at the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. July is Black, Indigenous, People of Color Mental Health Awareness Month, and DBSA was fortunate enough to speak with two online support group facilitators, Michelle Bibby and Mario Lemos. Both Mario and Michelle identify as persons of color, and our conversation takes us through their personal journey with wellness, what a person of color may experience in a support group, and some of the general challenges people of color may have when trying to access mental health resources. DBSA also spoke with community psychologist Dr. Obari Cartman. Dr. Cartman works with youth in the Chicago area where he provides clinical services to high school students. He is also a program director at Real Man Charities where he hosts a weekly men's wellness circle. Our conversation with Dr. Cartman covers stigma surrounding mental health, how mental health organizations can improve their approach to reaching out to communities of color, and the importance of peer support as a tool to improve community mental health. We hope you enjoy our conversations. Remember to rate and review the podcast so we can continue to bring you high quality content and very special guests. Thank you. So today we're joined by Michelle Bibby and Mario Lemos. They're both uh, DBSA support group facilitators. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you. Thank you so, for having me too. Michelle, would you like to tell our audience a little bit about your experience with DBSA and your experience as a support group leader? Sure. Um, so just to speak to my lived experience, I'm a person with 30 plus years lived experience with bipolar disorder and psychosis. And I introduce every uh, support group that I uh, am facilitating with that descriptor uh, because it's about me. I am a person with lived experience. I'm living my life with this chronic health condition that is no different than diabetes or any other uh, chronic health health condition. So um, I found uh, recovery by participating in uh, DBSA support group meetings in Austin, Texas, uh, maybe uh, starting out 20 years ago. And um, I held my own uh, stigmatized attitudes about bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been uh, diagnosed many years prior to attending a DBSA meeting, but I was only medication compliant. I really hadn't come to a point of acceptance with the diagnosis. But I had the most uh, wonderful heartwarming experience when I attended that first DBSA meeting because um, I, I had found my tribe. Um, And so the people attending the group, the participants, we were um, husbands, wives, moms, dads. Uh, We worked, we had careers, some people were students, but we were all living rich, full lives while managing this um, chronic health condition. Uh, So after attending uh, the support groups for about four years, um, I got trained by DBSA National to be a facilitator, and I started facilitating the groups, um, and I did that regularly for probably about five years, and then I was elected president of the DBSA Austin chapter, and I served in that role for uh, probably another couple of years. Uh, I am a certified peer specialist in the state of Texas. Um, I also have uh, 
trauma-informed uh, peer support training, uh, wellness recovery action plan training. Um, and so uh, lately I have been uh, facilitating online support groups for Support Group Central for about three years. And uh, I've been facilitating online DBSA support groups on the Support Group Central platform uh, for the past year. Um, and I think there's nothing more um, authentic than uh, peer support. Uh, when people with shared lived experience come together to connect with each other and relate to one another, um, there's nothing more powerful than that. Um, and I just thoroughly enjoy uh, facilitating the groups and have a fond place in my heart for DBSA. That's great. We love to hear it. And we always love to talk to people from our community. Mario, um, you want to tell our audience a little bit about what you do I mean, your experience with DBSA? Sure. Um, and so I am, uh, I've been diagnosed with depression, PTSD, and anxiety. I'm unipolar. Um, and um, so um, I've been involved with DBSA uh, going back about 15 years. One of the things uh, that I struggled with was uh, the sort of uh, just being alone in this process of uncovering my own mental health and the stigma around it, and particularly the stigma with having to do with uh, medication. I, I just, um, the, everything that I read and everything that I learned, my early sort of uh, idea of, you know, being in a mental institution, all of those things just really plagued me in a way that I just felt really alone. I had seeked a psychiatrist early on and uh, the psychiatrist uh, mentioned the group, the DBSA group, and I was really sort of do I want to go to the group? How was I feeling about that? You know, who, who are these people that I'm going to meet, you know, in the group? And the moment I stepped in the door, I felt so welcomed. And as Michelle said, I found my tribe, you know, um, I felt so welcome. And I really finally sort of like outed myself. And I remember that very first meeting, just really feeling a camaraderie and a sense of I'm not alone in this process. I'm not alone. And I was at my low lows during that first meeting. I'll never forget that. Um, I thought, wow, I came out of it feeling a lift. I'll never forget that. A, a, you know, even though I felt so low in this process of, right. you know, just understanding all my, everything that was going on, I felt a big relief to understand that I can't wait to go to the next meeting. I can't wait to go to the next Saturday meeting and see all these people again and to have this discourse and discussion about what I'm going through and to continue this process of wellness. So that was my first introduction to DBSA. And, um, you know, there's so much gratitude from that moment on, even through the process of knowing that sometimes you're well and you don't attend meetings, you always know that it's there. And that's so good. And it's there for people throughout this process. And we, at our chapter, even if DBSA, our meetings fall on Christmas, there's going to be a meeting, you know, and that to me really? is, yeah, yeah, we've had it and we've had um, 
we've had potlucks if you know everybody comes and brings something you don't have to you know it's not like the red but it's it's so special it is so special and to, for for myself it and i think like michelle said there are people from all walks of life students moms dads you know professionals that have you know have uh, sort of gained whatever sort of momentum in their lives they come in with the same sort of uh you know, the same uh, sort of issues at hand in terms of mental illness. So that's my introduction to DBSA, and I'm so grateful for it. Yeah, that's great. I am glad to hear that. I, I wasn't aware of things like that. And I think our audience would love to know uh, more about support, what happens in support groups. Um, but as both you and Michelle mentioned, um, you guys mentioned finding your tribe and finding a place to belong. And that's kind of why we're here today. So as we know, July is BIPOC Mental Health Awareness Month. And DBSA has taken this opportunity to launch a campaign dedicated to addressing the needs of the BIPOC community. So we know as well as you guys know that there are certain challenges that come with uh, mental health and being a person of color. We wanted to have a, you know, a very candid discussion about those challenges and we appreciate you being here. So with that said, let's talk about some of the issues one may face just uh, on a cultural level when we're talking about being a person of color and, and mental health. Well, I'm, I'll go first. So uh, full disclosure, I am African-American. And so uh, in honor of the DBSA meeting guideline, share from your own personal experience. I'm going to share from the experience of my cultural community because that's what I know. Right. So, um, you know, the um, we come together in the DBSA support group meetings based on our shared lived experience with mood disorders. But I also come as a black woman. So mm -hmm. at the intersection of uh, living with a mental health condition, I also have lived experience as living while black in America. Mm -hmm. And um, that is a unique experience. It brings with it unique stressors and challenges and um, our chapter in Austin was not, did not have diverse membership. Okay. Uh, the members of the chapter were uh, predominantly white. Uh, even all of the time that I served as a facilitator, as well as chapter president, we had very few African-American participants. Mm -hmm. um, they would come one or two times and then they'd never return. Um, and I think it is part of partly because we're living at that intersection of the experience of having the mood disorder, but also the black experience. And so if I am African-American and I come into a DBSA support group right. and all of the participants or the preponderance of the participants, as well as the facilitators are not people of color, um, First of all, how welcome do I feel in that group? But then I can't bring authentically all of myself to my sharing because I will fully recognize as a Black person there are things that I would like to share um, that may make the other members of the group uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, there 
and then within my own cultural community, there are stigmas um, still. Uh, there are stigmas in uh, American society uh, as it relates to mental health conditions, but there are still um, stigmas that run deep in the African-American community. Right. And um, it, it's, DBSA has an awesome opportunity to be able to invite uh, people of color mm -hmm. into the groups, uh, but every chapter has to figure out uh, a strategy um, so that when the people of color come, they feel welcomed, they are embraced, and um, they feel like they can bring their whole selves to the sharing. Um, because the, the authenticity of the sharing that I am able to express um, really um, impacts the, the full measure of benefit that I'm going to get from the peer support group. Authenticity being a main component of getting true, real peer support. Absolutely. And, and, you know, part of the reason behind the need for facilitators of color mm -hmm. and having more support group uh, members who are people of color is that um, the deeper, the more aligned uh, people's lived experience is, the more depth that you can have in the sharing and the connection that occurs uh, within the support groups. So I can go to a much deeper place of sharing and connecting with people who are living at that intersection of lived experience with mental health condition and lived experience coming from a uh, community of color. And Mario, what, what has your experience been with challenges from the community? Sure. Well, I so, um, I myself, and I, of course, I'm only going to speak from my own personal experience. Um, I identify as a queer person of color. I was born in Pakistan and uh, am an immigrant. I came to this country when I was 16. Um, and I think all my experiences have led through um, some of the traumas that I've experienced in PTSD and unlearning some of that and really focusing on what it meant to come to to the USA and how to adapt the adapt the adaptability and how quickly we ha I had to learn how to adapt and some some ways I was forced to adapt there's no there's no squirting around it in high school I was like oh you got to play the sports you got to do this you got to do that you know you've got to do something and now I don't have to do anything. I can do whatever I want to. And that's the unlearning of, of, of the experiences of being in a place. Um, and, you know, that takes, you know, that takes time because we're, we're, we're forced into doing, you know, we're forced into doing a lot of things that we possibly don't want to do. And I think when that, uh, you know, when it comes to the meetings, I think that, as Michelle was saying, and I so I'm thinking a lot about this in the recent events and through the times that I've been at DBSA. Luckily, our you know our demographic is 
you know, we're, we're lucky to have people come, you know, to have an open discussion, but I don't think they're being fully mm -hmm. present and fully, fully sort of, I, I want to say authentically ex uh, letting us know how they feel. They're pushing back a little bit because they feel like, how do I, how can I maneuver around this and not go too deep? And I really mean too deep, you know, that's the word. It's like, I need to talk about my history. I need to talk about how this has impacted me in, in my life now. And how do I, and these are all the things that I, I'm personally thinking about, is I've never really been able to talk about certain experiences or certain things that have happened in my life that that job interview that I had that I knew that that was, you know, that was no telling way. the moment that like, oh, yeah, I'm being judged in a different way or, you know, things that have arisen. And, you know, how would that sound in the group? You know, will people say, oh, he's just making that stuff up or, you know, all these things. Right. And maybe that's only in my mind. But those are the experiences. Those are my experiences that I'm experiencing and how I always see social media, I'm confronted by all of these things all the time. But what I'm so grateful for right now is that I, you know, allowing ourselves to actually be there and be there fully. And if we can do that in, in a way, as we start our first group for the uh, person, people of color group that we're starting the first Wednesdays of the month. And we're, I'm so excited about to see what can come out of it, to share our experiences and to really look at our history so that we can come, come to the meeting fully. That's the way I would see it to come. You, you, there is no, you can, you can talk about anything as long as you're not hurting anybody else, as long as right. you're not, you know, uh, coming to it. If this is your shared lived experience and what, how has it impacted you and how do you, how can we learn from it is, is something that I've been thinking about throughout my life and through this process, because there are times I'll tell you where I've seen folks come to the DBSA meeting and I feel like, Oh boy, that person's not going to come back, you know, I, and it, it, it's like, I want to go out there, please come back, come back, right. you know, we need you. And so this is, this is the time that, you know, it's to embrace everything in a special group that we can just really come together and, talk about these experiences and how the current, you know, what is happening right now is impacting us. And how right. do we, how do we talk about that openly and fully? Yeah. So both of you touched on a little bit about um, how you think DBSA could improve making the support groups feel more welcoming to people of, of color. Is there things that you think like uh, education or getting more facilitators of color or um, just having that open conversation? Is there, is there other steps that DBS, DBSA can take to be more welcoming? Well, I mean, I think the, the chapters, um, if they can establish relationships with um, organizations, community organizations in their um, local areas mm -hmm. uh, that are um, prominent uh, community-based community organizations from communities of color. Okay. Um, just uh, establishing dialogue and relationships. Uh, my, my sense is that DBSA um, 
does not have a lot of name recognition. And I can say in the African-American community, I think mm -hmm. that is absolutely true. So um, to the extent that chapters can just reach out to um, commu community-based organizations from communities of culture in their area to say, hey, this is who we are, this is what we do, uh, we want to make you aware of uh, the uh, support groups that we provide. Um, is there any partnering that we can do in any way? Um, so it's just reaching out. Yeah, um, very grassroots. And, and it should be grassroots. However, at the higher level, mm -hmm. um, NAMI has very good name recognition in the Black community. I'll, I'll okay. just speak to the Black community. Uh, the NAMI CEO is a Black man, um, and NAMI has uh, created a partnership, a longstanding partnership with uh, the faith community in the, in the Black community. So they have an initiative that is partnered with black churches all throughout the United States. And the black church is often the heart of the black mm -hmm. community, whatever city you're in, in the United States. And uh, then I am a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, which is the oldest black sorority in the United States. And so NAMI National also had a partnership with the AKAs where mm -hmm. every um, AKA grad chapter was charged with doing some sort of mental health community initiative with their local NAMI affiliate related to uh, mental health. So um, yeah, just I think um, exposing the brand to right. communities of color, building relationships and trust uh, and looking for opportunities to partner. Gotcha. Mario, in your experience, what, what do you think uh, DBSA could do to improve that relationship? Uh, you know, I, uh, again, I, I sort of, I'm, I'm going to piggyback on what Michelle said. Um, I think outreach, advocacy, and partnership, those, those are the three things that come to mind in, in the, the sphere of just educating our community. Mm -hmm. um, we have, I think one of the things that I'm going to try to do with, uh, with this group that we're starting um, fairly soon in August is on our personal level is reaching out to, uh, to our city offices. I think that's one of the biggest things to really look at. We have a director of uh, Office of Racial Equity in the city and county of San Francisco. I've already touched base with her. How can we be this is a free format. You are more than welcome. So spreading that word out and really trying to align ourselves with a group of people that could use this support and really use the support within certain areas of our city, which is, you know, it, it's really important to do some outreach within that community and educate them. And particularly right now with uh, the, the what, what we can do in support groups that are expanding with the certain demographics of people of color mm -hmm. to, again, partner with other organizations that are really doing some, you know, it, it doesn't mean that you have to give up your own sort of DBSA is really special. 
it really it has been like this format it doesn't mean that you're giving it up but you're accentuating at least for myself i feel it can be accentuated and lifted up to a platform where it's recognized that you can you can get this support and it's so special that if i just want you to know about it you know <laughs> so that you know it's that advocacy part which is really sort of imperative in in sort of um, just knowing, letting people know that it's out there for them, you know, as, as a resource. Yeah. What would you say to someone who says DBSA is catering to a community of color, but mental health doesn't discriminate. So DBSA shouldn't discriminate. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think DBSA has been catering to communities of color um, in any regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, you know, if you pay attention to um, public health news and information that is going on right now in the United States, it is clearly recognized that racism is a public health crisis. Mm-hmm. And so, to the extent that DBSA is a mental health serving organization, it only makes sense. Uh, for the the conversation or the strategy of the organization um, that it will focus in some way mm-hmm. on uh, the experience that uh, people are having uh, in communities of color. You know, you can look at the uh, racial disparities as it relates to COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, there, uh, you know, uh, police brutality and, and killings of unarmed young black men. There are things that are happening in this country that absolutely will impact the mental health of people living in communities of color. So it's imperative that we open the conversation up to include right. these issues. Right. I I completely agree. I think that this is the time, even if we haven't um, done it before, um, you know, we we obviously have been focusing on the sort of the illness of being diagnosed with bipolar and depression, but all of all of these instances comes from the experience of racism is a huge impact on our mental illness. You know, it really is, and it never is addressed in our meetings. I have never gone to a meeting and have sort of said, well, you know what, this is, this has really impacted me. And that is the core issue at hand because it's pushed to the side and so long we've pushed it away. It needs to be almost pushed to the forefront so that you do need groups of color coming together and talking candidly about this because so much you're kind of like, you're compartmentalizing in some way. And I'm saying this for myself, you know, and this is, I'm like, oh, today I'm going to talk about how I'm feeling, but gosh, okay, well, uh, you know, this thing happened to me today while I was this, you know, it's like, oh, uh, so you're compartmentalizing all of this. Sorry, you know, that that you just have to be brave and, you know, and, and there, there's so much passive aggressiveness in this in this 
situation that we're and even when you are sitting in a group you, you know and we have people from all walks of life where you you sit and you just know that i can't talk about this right now in this right. group because maybe i don't feel safe you know um, so those are those are the issues at hand and now we're actually I think uh, I think that we're being brave enough to really come together and DBSA has to take the stand in really pushing this to the forefront of the lived experience of being brown and black and a person of color mm. in this country and how it has impacted our wellness and even if we're diagnosed I mean there's, I think there's so many people that are, they, they don't want to get diagnosed, but they live with that experience because they don't have the, they don't have the means, they don't have the, you know, and so they resolve to alcohol, all of those things that we already know. But anyway, that's what my, that's what I see and the impact of, of areas where you know, if we can do outreach to the areas that are so needed, whether we can have a support group in that area, whether, the, you know, we can we can address churches and whether we can address, you know, certain places that are, you know, the temples that, you know, mm -hmm. if I can go to the Hindu temple and say here, you know, because they're just there's such a big stigma there, you know, so those are the things that I think that uh, can happen with um, just really outreach advocacy partnership and really addressing what racism is and how it impacts people of color yeah and mental illness and and i want to say also i think we have fully acknowledged that veterans deserve uh peer support that is led by vets catered towards the needs of vets and right. so uh targeted uh, support groups uh, led by, facilitated by people of color to meet the needs of people living in communities of color is no different. Right. It's, the, it's the same exactly. uh, strategy. Yeah. Right. Well, I could talk to you guys forever. I could have this conversation <laughs> with you all day, but I know you guys are busy. I want to respect your time. Is there anything else you would like our community to know before we um, say goodbye for the day? Well, I'm just going to say personally, um, you know, I think DBSA has been a place for me um, throughout the years where I've come in and gone out again, as I said earlier, that I know it's there for me. I've made some really good friends there through the years, you know, uh, and that camaraderie is unlike anything. Mm -hmm. uh, I like the fact that I would never have met this person in any other social circumstances in my life that I came to meet them in this atmosphere. And that's a special thing for me. That is hugely impacted my life in a way that has just been a very positive thing. So I thank DBSA for that. I think the road that we're, we're uh, like building and paving the way, uh, which I'm really excited about, particularly for this group that we're starting up, is important. That that needs it, it it needs to be addressed. It needs to have importance in in addressing racism and what it does in our everyday lives. The uh, the aggression that we feel and everything that we can talk openly and candidly in a in a in a support group, um, and you know I. I, I feel that 
I, I, you know, we will have people coming. (laughs) You know, I have, I, I have no doubt we, we did a uh, e-blast out and people are excited. So this is, this is important to the, uh, to our chapter. And my, my last uh, remarks would be uh, one of the uh, foundational tenets of peer support Mm -hmm. is mutuality. And what that means is at, as peers, we come together, there's no power differential between us. So we come together mutually to connect, connect with each other, but also to learn and grow um, together. And so for the DBSA chapters who uh, are not able at this point in time to launch uh, specific support groups for communities of color, Um, just recognize that when people of color come and participate in the support group, it enriches the diversity of the sharing. And and leaning into that mutuality, everybody will learn and grow together as a result of that. The DBSA brand is strong. Uh, we have a unique opportunity to expand the brand, brand awareness into communities of color. Excellent. Well, I appreciate both of you speaking with me today. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so Dante. much, Dante. Take, <laughs> Take care. good care. Be well. You too. Be well. Thanks, Michelle. Bye-bye, Mario. Today we're joined by Dr. Obari Cartman. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Cartman. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. And so, Dr. Cartman, for the people in our audience who aren't familiar with you or your work that you do in Chicago, you want to tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I am um, born and raised in Chicago, so hometown. Um, I uh, my background is uh, clinical and community psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a lot of work in integrating mental health uh, awareness, access services with art, culture. A lot of the work I do is with um, young black men. Um, I have a, a rights of passage curriculum, a hip hop based sort of program that deals with, you know, depression and anxiety and character and historical context and identity and those kind of things. And I have a book for young black men about mental health and I do men's circles and we do yoga and play African drums and try to create space where we can invite the community to um, do some reflecting and supporting and uh, interrogating and improving ourselves in ways that don't always look like sitting on a couch and being analyzed in the same way. So I spent a lot of time just thinking about grassroots mental health access and using culture and arts as a way to bring people into space that the art and the music is is a part of the the attraction, but also a part of the healing itself. So, gotcha. So, in your work um, dealing with the um, young black male population and mm-hmm. mental uh, mental health, do you find it necessary to use the cultural touchstones in order to um, have an actual authentic conversation with them, to make those quote unquote breakthroughs? Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, And part of it is that, you know, the breakthrough happens not necessarily because of me or my conversation, but the the art and the culture itself. It could be food. It could be 
music, it could be dance, it could be drums, but I think embedded in the medium is medicine. And so part of it is, is just to introduce, facilitate opportunities for, for us to connect to the diverse ways that healing is, is, is possible. Right. So. July is BIPOC Mental Health Awareness Month, um, and DBSA is having the conversation about how people of color approach mental health and how they access mental health. Um, and we know we are, we are painfully aware that it may be harder for someone of color to access mental health. Um, and so we appreciate you uh, talking to us today about that. And so first and foremost, what are some of the challenges from your side of things? Mm -hmm. um, well, we have certainly made lots of strides in the black community around the mental health stigma. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, rappers, celebrities, uh, and just common folk, uh, everyday folks, pastors, ministers, I think that there's there been a lot of people on board with this movement to destigmatize therapy. And I think it's worked. I think that um, people are more open, people are calling more often. Uh, I think that they're attaching therapy with the, the crazy stigma less mm -hmm. often as we becoming more, as we normalize the conversation about the ways in which life is difficult and it's normal to be sad and anxious and afraid. And these are sort of everyday kind of things that don't have to be connected to the extreme versions of mental health disorders like schizophrenia or something like that. Right. So uh, I do appreciate that the conversation is more accessible. Um, and yet and still, with that, I think that the professionals in the field have done less um, work to create like actual opportunities to connect with therapists mm -hmm. um, and to remove some of the barriers procedurally of connecting your insurance, your Medicaid, um, of having counselors in places where people already are, like schools or mm -hmm. churches, um, connecting therapists with you know, coaches for basketball camps, um, uh, making sure that uh, artists and uh, mental health professionals, social workers are in community, I think is the, the next wave of this. And I think and it, we're, we're kind of a, a ways away from that. So I think part of the barrier is that people get the idea that I would like to see a therapist, I'm open to it. Um, I, I think that it would be beneficial for me, but don't know where to begin to start. Don't know where to look for it don't know how to find a therapist, don't know how to pay for a therapist, right. don't know how to select a good therapist. Um, so I think it's our job to go to the community more than wait for them to figure it out. And so some of those barriers are structural. Uh, and there's still some, you know, some value stigma kind of things that are happening. Yeah. But in my experience of doing this work, I do a lot of work in high schools and I have programs where, you know, I just get a list of, of young black men and, they're usually the ones that are causing lots of trouble in the school. And I'll go to them, I'll pull them out of class, and I'll say, hey, my name's Dr. Cartman. I just wanted to offer you an opportunity to come sit and talk. And as zero times has a young man been like, no, nah, I don't want to share my, my inner thoughts. Like, right. I'm frustrated. like zero times has a young man said, no, nah, I'm not ready for this. Um, so I think that the access problem is bigger than the stigma problem. Got you. The people are ready for this. How important do you think it is that you look like the people that you're talking to? I think it's very important. I think it matters. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm on the younger side mm -hmm. of the doctors that they see, or even not even see in person, but like have in their mind. Maybe think about the credibility and the, the, the posterity of um, the prestige of a doctor, right? You think. Right. 
white man with a gray beard, right? So, <laughs> so it's a part of that. Just that. So my my presentation disarms the, the moment. Like right? so I walk in, I'm wearing uh, you know a hoodie and some jeans, whatever you know. So I think I think that helps just with the the comfort. Um, but I think that there are also other things that I do very deliberately that you know have more to do with my approach than my being black um, when young and so part of it is just my authenticity like I lead with transparency I'm very informal I'm very relaxed Um, I don't push Um, and so I think that that people across right genders race uh, class can do a lot to build bridges where you can learn from different perspectives in really Mm -hmm. valuable ways um, once people get the sense that you are sincere about what your intention is, um, and if you are really there to help, then you really just provide that space, you provide the opportunity. And, and people will, will, you know, I think will, will, will see it, they, they, they will assess it, and for the most part, I think we can be really successful when they, from whatever your position is, go with authentic desire to connect and to learn, and, and not so much to like teach or to share or to fix, um, and I think that that, that approach from professionals uh, can go a long way. No, I not you know I know that our audience would be happy to hear that um, that so much of academia is, is based on the medical model, and sometimes we know that it takes an, a, a multi pronged approach to actually get through to people and to have those authentic conversations. Here at DBSA, we work on a support group model where we have um, chapters all across the country who um, host support groups, and these support groups are facilitated by peers. It's a place where peers can go get peer support from people who are also living with a mood disorder. We even have support groups for family. And talking with the peers, we find found out that oftentimes they'll see one or two um, people of color, they'll come to one or two meetings, they may not share, and then they they might not show up again. Why might a person of color find it difficult to express themselves in one hour support group? Um, I mean, it does matter that a lot of the things that are causing the mental health problems for us are connected to systemic historical context, mm-hmm. uh, intergenerational traumas. And so it's it's really important that that frame, that analysis is a part of the healing and the diagnosis and the treatment plans. And if we walk into a room and get the sense that, that there's not a space for that, mm-hmm. that I just got to deal with breathing techniques or changing my thoughts, but not having an understanding that part of the reason I've been traumatized or part of the reason I'm depressed is because of oppression um, and, and that there is not a deliberate safe space for those conversations to be had by whoever's facilitating it, black, white, or otherwise, mm-hmm. then it's hard to, to really settle into the space. And so I think it's important for all clinicians, all facilitators, peers, or professionals to create the space for culture, race, history, systems, context, politics, to be a part of the healing space. Um, because that opens up the room for whatever you bring to, to, have, to have space to, to, to be processed in the room. And so there, there are already assumptions that people make when they come in and they see a white person behind the room. You, just, you automatically feel like they're just not going to get it. Right. Like they're not going to really understand, not even just the language or the culture, but like the context. And so then now you are seeking help and now you feel like you got to explain the context over and over again. Like this, 
That is, right. that is yeah. a, a stat healing. Um, so if 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 the, if the I think there's a responsibility of the facilitators to to do their work, to study, to learn context, to understand, um, to not make the clients, the so-called or or the peers even have to to do the work of explaining why is everybody so mad right now? Like, what is this Black Lives Matter thing about? Right. Um, and there's resources for that. There's books for that. And there's seminars and webinars. I think that facilitators have to do that work in advance so that they can be prepared to lead with that so that everyone in the circle knows that, okay, this is a different kind of space. Even in, I had in my mind as an assumption based on the race or the culture that's presented by the person in charge. So if I'm a, uh, a white facilitator, basically, mm-hmm. and I came to you and I said, Dr. Cartman, I have, you know, people of color in my support group, but they're not really talking. They're not expressing themselves. How, what can they do to um, make the, the space more inclusive? Um, one of the things that I think that is really valuable that uh, European descent can do in creating space to talk about culture is to do their own personal reflections about ways in which race, culture, class, all these sort of identity characteristics play into their personal and professional lives. Okay. So that they can begin to model the transparency and the reflection on those levels. Um, Because what I think happens often is white people get this sense that like they're culture-less, which reinforces this idea that they belong to the dominant, right. whatever is the normal, or whatever is regular. And that can raise a sort of oblivion sometimes that um, even in the moment, like the fact that we have in this conversation in English right. is, a, is a result of generations of violence that has been imposed on my tongue that if you're not thinking about it, you, that's just you know, we just, that's normal talk. We don't, now we're talking the regular talk, but it's not normal. It's not regular. It's a cultural perspective. It's a, it's a vantage point and everybody has it. So whatever you, whatever you, your ancestry is, wherever you descend from, I think that um, white therapists, white providers need to acknowledge their racial and cultural identity and be honest about that and be honest about the ways in which they are still learning about that. Um, and that, can make room again get permission to the rest of the participants to do that for themselves and so you don't have to say oh well i, I know you know it's not so much about learning about everybody else's culture it's right. more about learning about your own stuff and then presenting that and not having could be trained as, perfect, as clinicians to be distant in the room to have some like boundaries and, and the boundaries are important um but i think that particularly people of color I expect a certain amount of um transparency to build the trust mm-hmm. and that like i want to know who it is that is giving me the advice is asking <laughs> right um and, and and part of the knowing who that is isn't even about like whether you're married or your, your mistakes so much sometimes it can be but if we're talking about race cultural stuff that white people cannot hide behind the the, the, the diversity conversation means people of color it means right other than um because that just it's, it's not true, and it reinforces the privilege of being a part of a culture that is seen as the normal. I, I love the switch from Minority Mental Health Month because mm-hmm. even like like there's the, there's the, the 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 coded connotation of less than right with the um, word minority. Mm-hmm. 
And so the majority, the regular, the normal, like all these things we have to just interrogate, dissect, play around with, and do it openly, transparently, so that whoever's in the room knows that you have considered all of these dynamics and nuances and, and open to learning more, but you're not, as a, as, a, as a person in need of help, you're not having to help the helper. Yeah. When I was in school, we learned from advertising, like, hey, never pander to your audience. I know <laughs> advertisers yeah. always think like, some advertisers have this notion that, notion that audiences are dumb, but they're not. And yeah, they, can right, right, tell, right. they can tell when you're pandering. And I'm always hyper aware of when we're trying to put out something culturally significant that we're not pandering because mm-hmm. in my experience, um, being a person of color, we're hyper aware. Yeah, of yeah. when someone yeah. is not being authentic and yeah, yeah. you're just saying words yeah, that yeah. you think you should be saying right? Right, right right i am curious about your work here in chicago as it comes to uh, uh young black males and the current um what we're seeing currently in chicago with mm-hmm. uh at least in the media narrative how important is mental health in this current narrative around the, the quote-unquote violence in chicago I think it's central. I think it, I think the mental health problem is the problem. And I think that we continue to frame it as gun violence mm-hmm. or other things. Um, and when you think, and when you, when you conceive of a problem as the gun violence problem, then the solutions are so much more narrow. Right. Um, so then it's bringing federal troops because <laughs> to fix gun violence problem, you bring bigger guns and have more control and more dominance to stamp out the gun violence problem. Um, but from my vantage point, the anger, the trauma, the depression, the lack of emotional intelligence, the lack of support, the isolation, the uh, grasping for uh, safety and productive and meaningful opportunities for these young men, all those things are the, 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 the foundation of the problem that manifest in gun violence. Mm-hmm. And so if we really want to get at how do we solve this problem, we have to stop talking about young black men as the problem, as a nuisance, as a problem to solve, and think about them as full human beings that deserve safety and joy and peace of mind and opportunities to thrive. And as long as we are just trying to control and remove them, we'll never see them as full human beings. But when you think about it as human beings, you think, well, what do they need as humans? They need opportunities, they need resources, they need right. support, they need love, they need affection, they need compassion, they need art and culture. They need, there's so many things that, um, once you think about it like that, then you start to unpack ways in which resources have been disinvested from these communities mm-hmm. um, and they're left to survive. And when people are surviving, they lean on all types of maladaptive responses to the trauma that they've experienced. And so I think that, you know, and, and I don't ever even think that like individual therapy is the solution for that. I think there's mm-hmm. much broader systemic, you know, I really love the peer support model. Um, I think that there are not enough uh, professionals to go around and that even the way the professionals are trained sometimes does not do the work that is needed in the communities. And so folks that are experiencing it, that have experienced it, that are living with it, um, uh, just people that they naturally see as allies or leaders um, and support systems. Uh, we need to give those those folks 
tools and space to be able to facilitate conversations to help us see each other better and more fully and then discover on our own what it is it take to create support systems in our communities and our families that can provide for our young boys for in particular um, the things that they need and not wait for the city to do it or wait for the city to make things worse by solving a problem with the wrong solution. Yeah, so expanding that peer support model, Absolutely. just just in general, basically, yeah. not Absolutely. even it doesn't even necessarily need to be about mental health. But before we let you go, I do have one more question for you. We're ha- we're obviously having this conversation, and that's one step that we can take in order to uh, make our community more educated about the um, challenges that people of color may face. What other advice would you have to uh, mental health organizations like DBSA to help further this understanding and making um, our organization more inviting and more inclusive to people of color? Um, I mean, I think there's really great momentum right now, nationally, internationally, around looking at the root problems and moving beyond in individual instances of disorder or dysfunction or police encounters or whatever the individual instance is and looking at the patterns and looking at the systems and looking at the structures. And I think that we all need to do better as organizations to look at ways in which our funding, our our boards, our organizations um, have from the root and the foundation of our structure have been influenced by systems of injustice. And it's not, it's, it's easy to just point the finger at like the police because they're out there, right? right? But I think that the teachers need to do the same work. I think that the lawmakers need to do the same work and certainly the mental health organizations. And we all need to think about what are the ways in which my, my training, I'll speak for myself as a, as a professional, was rooted in a cultural, racial um, domination that's rooted in historical context that has propped a certain people up to be superior so for me very specifically that means being in school learning a lot about freud and skinner and watson and mm-hmm. about humanity being de- 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 defined by a narrow you know what i'm saying very specific point of view I'm mostly old white men right? <laughs> right that becomes that becomes my my version of what healing looks like of what analysis for problems look like and so part of what it means for mental health organizations to decolonize our work mm-hmm. to go to the root of the, the foundations of how we define what it means to be whole and human and family and successful and interrogate all of it from its root. So that informs how we diagnose, how we treat, how we understand, you know, solutions. And I think that all of organizations have to do that work right now to look at the foundational structure of how we've consumed ideas and how that manifests in the organizational structures that we operate in. Um, we need to take a pause and just look at it and think about ways in, in which it serves everyone or which it serves some of us and do more work to make sure that more people are included in the vision for a holistic healing for communities um, and, ca- and then create access to give that, to give it away, to, to create you know what I'm saying, spaces for that to grow. And so I think that's all, I think that's everybody's work right now. Excellent. Um, we appreciate you being here, Dr. Cartman. If people want to find your work or hear you speak or, you know, just get in touch with you, how, where can they find you? Um, I have a website, uh, drobaricartman.com. I'm on Instagram, 
Facebooks and the Twitters. So I'm pretty easy to find. Just type in your name, you'll come up. Type in my name, I come up. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dr. Carmen. We appreciate it. Yes, I appreciate you, bro. Thank you.